0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogeneous Saturdays. This program is being pre recorded Saturday afternoon for the evening of August 25th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we have our friend Sven Longshanks here with us once again, and we are going to present Bible Basics part three. I don't know how many more segments of this that this series there will be. We are just trying to explain what the Bible means in the context of history and how we should understand it. Hello, Sven. Thank you for being here.
1: Hi, Bill. Uh, yeah, I'm very glad to be here once again. I, I think it's great that we're doing this series. We may be coming over some things that uh, some people have have heard before, but it's just good to get across the the Christian identity understanding of the Bible, because if you don't actually have that, then it really doesn't make a lot of sense. You need to understand the the racial side of it and and how important these covenants are, particularly the one that we're going to be talking about tonight. I mean, the the Judeo-Christians just don't seem to understand that this was an unconditional covenant, completely unconditional. It didn't matter, um, whether the Israelites d- d- obeyed the laws or whatever. This was unconditional. It was later covenants that, um, were, had a, had a, an element of, um, we will obey this. If we don't obey it, then we'll be cursed and, and all of that sort of thing. But this first covenant, this Abrahamic covenant, it, this couldn't be broken. And the churches just don't understand that. And because they don't understand it, their interpretation of the Bible doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense, but our our interpretation of the Bible does make sense, and
0: it's it logical. it's logical, isn't it? You know, Absolutely, that the Abrahamic covenant, that the Levitical covenant, which had conditions, came over four hundred years after the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional. The Levitical covenant governed a kingdom, and as long as the children of Israel were obedient and held up their end of the conditions, they would be successful in that kingdom. When they failed to uphold their end, the kingdom was destroyed, and they were scattered. But that does not negate the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, which was 430 years before that. The Christian New Covenant is made unconditionally with the descendants of those same people in order that Yahweh God keep his promises to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he gave in the Abrahamic covenant, which was unconditional. And and that's an important aspect of Christianity, which all of the denominational churches purposely overlook or ignore or even despise and reject.
1: How can they look at the prophecies? These prophecies are all concerning one particular people. They're all concerning the tribes of Israel. Every one of those prophets was from the tribes of Israel. They're talking about the tribes of Israel. They're, they're foretelling what's going to happen. And then the modern-day churches tell you that, oh, no, they were talking about somebody completely different. They were, they were talking
0: about all these other people. It's it's crazy. And over and over again the New Testament writers explain that they are seeing witnessing the fulfillments of those prophecies. The promise, the, the the keeping of the promises on the part of God is found in Christ and it's for those same people that the promises were made to and nobody else. And, and we're going to demonstrate a lot of that this evening. First, I think that people need some background on what the world was like at the time of Abraham. And while Paul did not call it paganism, he was referring to the errors of pagan Greeks and pagan Romans, where in his epistle to the Colossians, for, for example, he made a reference to the worship of angels. Those angels are ostensibly fallen angels. They're described in the Mesopotamian inscriptions from a different perspective, as we already discussed in in the first parts of this series. They are fallen angels who sought to be worshipped as gods, but who, from the biblical perspective, are actually demons, as we also read in the Old Testament. Now, this is also evident from an opposing perspective in the Mesopotamian inscriptions. Once you understand that the Mesopotamian myths and and legends are transmitted from the opposite perspective as the Christian literature. So all of the white Genesis 10 nations, by the time of Abraham, were off in, in this pagan worship of these false gods going after their own way, and not seeking after the God of their fathers. Paul explained this in Acts chapter 14, where he said that God had, in times past, suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, referring to those white Adamic nations, which are listed in Genesis chapter 10, and and I think that we went to great length in part 2 series to show that those Genesis chapter 10 nations are the original um, white nations of modern history. I, I might be mistaken. Maybe you have some feedback on that.
1: Well, you no, know, I think that was a, a really good episode. I heard lots of people saying that they're really enjoying the series, and uh, you know that, that one was particularly good, it, explaining it all and just showing that where it's actually talking about these the people, the descendants of Noah, they, they cannot be traced back to these white nations. I, I know that there's um there's one book out there which tries to say that it's actually just talking about the cities and it was talking about um the, the cities were given those names, but those cities were given those names because they were named after the people that founded them. And the people that founded them were the sons of were the sons of Noah. So, they were, so they were all white. It, it, so, whether it doesn't matter if they were, if that was the name of the nations or, or the name of the cities, it was still named after these, this original family that was descended from Noah. Because I, I've had that um, put put to me as as a way to sort of disprove it, um, that, that it was just being named after cities and not people. But it's it's the same thing. It's, it's the founder of, of the cities,
0: the founder of of, of that, that civilization in that area. That's true, but when you trace those names throughout the scripture where they appear later in scripture, those names are used of tribes and not of cities. Elam is a tribe. Elam was never a city. Madai or, or the Medes that, that was a tribe. It was never a city.
1: Yeah, they were sort of saying that the, the tribes were named
0: after the, after the cities. but um, In many cases that is true. In, in fact, um, Carchemish Carchemish was the principal city of the ancient Hittites, and it was the capital of the ancient land of Hatti, or the Hittite Empire. And if you understand that the Hittites, whose eponymous ancestor is Heth, was a descendant of Ham, or Cam in Hebrew. It could be spelled either way. Then when you break the components down, the syllables down in this word chemish you'll find that a, a care is a city. Now, the word care, C-A-E-R spelled in C-A-E-R in Britain was a town, right? It yeah, was I was just an going to say, town.
1: it still is. It's, yeah, and it's, it's pronounced car as well. Car- Carlud, and Cardiff. Yeah, it's the same
0: same word. City Carthage is a word, it's two words, it's a phrase that means new city in Hebrew. Carthage. Um, the Greeks often called their cities new city, and that's where we get Naples from the Greek words Neapolis, meaning new city. And there were many Neapolises in ancient Greece, right? Well, well, Carthage meant new city in Hebrew. And kar means a town or a city in, in ancient Hebrew and, and Aramaic dialects. So we have kar, kamish, and ish is a people in Hebrew, and kam is a reference to ham. So kar kamish, it can be demonstrated, means city of the people of Ham. And that was the ancient capital of the Hittites who descended from Ham. So if these people want to get into city names, yeah, we could get into city names and demonstrate the connections. But, but that doesn't mean that these people weren't also tribes, ethnic tribes, who all descended from the common ancestor, Noah and, and his three sons. And, and that Genesis chapter 10 is a snapshot of what the white world looked like. In the days of Moses, as the book of Genesis and the accounts were being constructed.
1: Well, I it's, it's that al- simple. I, I think it's also interesting, you know, that, that, that you've got the same word there, car, car shamish. And, you know, the, that's the same word that's used in Wales for still in use today. And wel- Welsh is the old one of the oldest languages that we have. And it's the same word that was being used out there in, in the Middle East to describe a city. So it just shows you that there's been this link way back then between the people in Britain and the people out there and in North Africa.
0: Absolutely. And at one time, those people in in Wales, they worshipped Baal.
1: I think that's where we get Beltane from. And, yeah, there's a a lot of uh, words that are still to do with that, isn't there? Beltane, uh, the the festival. Well, well,
0: right, it's Beltane in some of the the, the early Celtic cultures, but it's just Bell in others. and and at various times, or bellus, if if we want to put a Greek word ending on it. Same word. It's the same word. Well, Well, anyway, speaking of pagans, right? Abraham's, and this is overlooked in scripture, Abraham's own fathers were pagan. And we read about this in Joshua chapter 24, where it is said that, And I quote, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods, small g gods. And and that word flood in that passage is a reference to the river Euphrates. Flood was another old English term for just a river, right? A river basically is a flood that's flowing out into the sea. So, the flood in that passage is a reference to the river Euphrates, and Abraham was originally from the other side of the flood, or the other side of the river Euphrates, in a land called Padanaram. And Padanaram, that word means the plain of Aram, which is north of the Euphrates River, in the far part, northern part of Mesopotamia, which we would consider to be today a part of northern iraq which is a traditionally aryan land even though the iraqis of modern times are really arab bastards the B- the bible story is an account of abraham being called out by god from this old pagan world and placed into the land of his enemies and i believe that was in order to exhibit the power of god to preserve a people which he chooses against all odds. And, and this aspect of the Bible story begins in Genesis chapter 12. In a historical perspective, and following the more accurate and more likely septuagint chronology, because the King James, the manuscripts upon which the King James version is based are, are clearly corrupted in many places. The flood of Noah happened before 3200 BC, and the call of Abraham happened around 2000 BC, a little after that. There were older cultures on the planet, but they did not belong to the Adamic race of the Genesis accounts from which our white race has descended. The Bible tells of pre-Adamic whites, where it refers to fallen angels. If they were fallen angels, they must have ostensibly been white. The Bible tells of pre-Adamic whites who mix their race and confuse the creation of God, which is depicted as an act of rebellion. The non-white races must be related to these, since they are all rejected by Scripture, since they all share, the Scripture tells us, they all share the same fate as the devil and his angels, and none of them were listed or admitted to be created by God. After the Flood, Non Adamic peoples who were not descended from Noah first appear in Scripture in Genesis chapter 15. The epistles of the apostles, as well as books that are now missing from the Bible, especially the book of giants, the book of Enoch, all help to clarify these things. Today, now, in modern times, we are pulled into the same paganism by the same people who are the corrupted descendants of those same so-called fallen angels. They mock the Bible because they cannot properly understand it. They would reject it if they could understand it. They promote ridiculous things such as the Big Bang Theory, the concept of evolution, and the idea that life derived from chaos, which we see in the ancient pagan literature, which Jewish so-called scientists like Carl Sagan called... The primordial ooze. Carl Sagan used to say that um, all life evolved from cells that came out of this primordial ooze. That's the same as the Tiamat story. That, That story, that's so imaginably scientific account is not very different than the primordial sea of tiamat from ancient babylonian literature and in reality modern science is based in large part on ancient pagan myths and talmudic sorcery that's all it is that's all this jewish so-called evolutionary science really is
1: I was reading about um uh, John Dee the other day, who apparently had a lot to do with the, the birth of, of modern science, and half of what he did was with the occult. It was with astrology, alchemy, talking to angels, learning the language that the angels spoke. And he, he admitted that half, half of what he was doing was to do with that. And uh, neo hermeticism, neo-Platonism, Edward Kelly, who he was involved with, and then you've got Isaac Newton and all the rest of them, all these Supposed great science, uh, scientific, um, wondrous people that we had in our past—they they were all involved in the occult, and 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 that played a huge part in the in the birth of what we think of today as as science. And it, and it ties in with economics as well, and usury. I e. Michael Jones has uh, done a lot on it. But I was just studying, looking at this John Dee thing the other day, and it, it even admits it on the Wikipedia page everything that he did was, was influenced by the occult and half of the science that he did came about because of it. So that you've got this. And, and again, he was trying to contact these fallen angels. So you, you right. you've got a link there as well.
0: That's what he thought he was doing. And, and I didn't, I did a series of podcasts a couple of years ago that were a forerunner to my protocol series called the Jews in medieval Europe. And, and I did cite some of E. Michael Jones' work earlier in, in that series having to do with Spain and Portugal, but the, the, the Kabbalah is really a work of Spanish Jews, Portuguese Jews, from the 12th century AD, and it is based on Neoplatonism and, and other um, ancient mystery cults and things like that. But it's not really ancient, the Kabbalah by itself. It only steals stuff from antiquity and incorporates it into this new Jewish mysticism that we can call the Kabbalah, which appears about the 12th century A.D. Now, later on, I did an entire segment of that series just on John D. Because John D.'s fascination with the Kabbalah is, I believe, the first step towards the Judaization of England. And and the the, the establishment of, of and, and there were German alchemists and German um they're really sorcerers, right? But German academics, German so-called scientists who were also in large numbers, and intrigued by this Jewish Kabbalah, but John Dee brought it to England, and he popularized it in England, and it's because of that, that is the route that was taken to turn the Masonic lodges in into speculation masonry lodges, and to found the so-called Royal Academies of the Sciences in in France and in England, that was all done on the backbone of the scientists who were intrigued by this Jewish Kabbalah, and it's all based on Jewish sorcery. Modern science is indeed, to a great extent, based on Jewish sorcery, and that was the route that it took.
1: And are still in... Did you know they also try to, to le- still try to legitimize it with you know with, with uh, biblical history? And they talk about uh, neo hermeticism going back to Hermes, the Greek god, and then they associate Hermes with Enoch. So, which so in their attempts to legitimize the, these pagan ideas, they, they try to trace them back to uh, characters in the early Hebrew Bible. You know, linking <laughs> with Enoch
0: that they take both the 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 pagan greek myths and twist them and then they take the biblical accounts and twist them and they try to make the similarities and the correlations when in reality there are no correlations hermes enoch was not hermes not by any means not even close <sighs> yeah it's it it's um it it's incredible it's an incredible um endeavor on a part of the devil that, that we have to address and contend with all the time that now I'm um, dealing with somebody in my Christagenia forum that got into um, that this sort of neo stoicism and, and he's trying to promote that above the continence that's expected of scripture of, of Christians in scripture you know self-restraint and continence is not stoicism and and they're actually a world apart but that endeavor started in in I think in Italy about five or six hundred years ago the attempt to make um, the ancient Stoics look Christian so that this yet you know Christianity is being attacked all the time from from many different angles that there was as many heresies as there are people who have read the bible i think but sometimes it seems that way right they'll
1: try any way to distort it won't they you know you're looking at the the, going right back to to the gnostic gospels and the way that they were trying to basically put out lots and lots of of false propaganda twisting the story of christ in the the hope that um you know that, that would distract people and where there was so much of it um, people would end up following that. And then they still, they dig that stuff up today and start promoting it as, oh, that's original Christianity with the Gnostic gospels. And then you've got the, the Freemasonic stuff trying to talk about the Old Testament and link that in with what they're doing. It, you know, it's constantly trying to distort the actual message. But all you've really got to do to, to get the message is just go, go back to the scripture
0: and look at that. If you understand how the Gnostics came to be, if you read Philo Judahius, and and the the things that he was teaching and and then go back and look at the gnostic literature and realize the connections right it it's the jews in alexandria that were behind the gnostic gospels they they contrived the gnostic gospels in order to discredit christianity and bring their own paganisms into it and and that failed at that time. And you're right, it has had far more success since those documents were rediscovered at Nag Hammadi 60, 70 years ago, right? It it's had a lot more success recently than it had in in antiquity, which is pretty incredible. And the, the there have been a lot of attacks on Christianity, and they have all come from the Jews at various times and places. The whole scheme of Freemasonry is Jewish in order to support Jewish Zionism. And that's what Freemasonry is all about. The ultimate rebuilding of Solomon's temple and the elevation of the Jew to world supremacy. That's the plan of Freemasonry since it was conceived and it was Jewish from its conception. So we're really getting off track. But right, all this paganism has come from the same people um, down through the ages, and they are always the enemies of God. Paul was speaking to men of biblical Javan. The Athenians were of Javan. These Ionian Greeks where he said in Acts chapter 17 that God had made of one blood and the word blood really isn't even any originals. It's God has made of one all nations of men for to dwell on the face of all the earth. And has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That's a description of what's going on in Genesis chapters 10 and 11 that only applies to our Adamic race. These other races of people should not even really be considered men. That they should seek the Lord if haply. They might feel after him and find him, though he be not from every, far from every one of us. For we live in him and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Paul taking advantage in a grammatic, in, in a rhetorical argument of Catalyst, the poet Catalyst, I believe. And where Paul said made of one and all nations, he was paraphrasing Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, and he meant only the nations of the Adamic race first listed as they existed in the time of Moses in Genesis chapter 10. And of course, the other races cannot properly claim any such origin. But even in Paul's time, There were only a few remnants of that old Genesis 10 world which remained intact. A new world had been created over those 2,000 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Christ. And that new world, as we shall see ultimately in this series, that new world, all of the former great empires had passed or were about to pass by the time of Christ. When I say former great empires, I mean empires that lasted for over 2,000 years. The, the Assyrians and the Persians and the Egyptians and the old Babylonians. Sumer was gone. Babylon was, was practically gone at the time of Christ. Persia wasn't going to survive much longer. Um, Egypt was, as we know it, was gone um, by the 5th, 6th century BC. It was overrun with Nubians in, in the 7th century BC, and the blood of Egypt was all spoiled. And, and the Egypt of the time of Christ was Macedonian. It was, it was Greek. It wasn't Egyptian. So all of these ancient great powers had disappeared between the time of the promise to Abraham and the time of christ they disappeared or they were greatly reduced in in power there were no more medes identifiable as medes really at that time these empires were all um destroyed or their cities were dismantled and their governments were destroyed and they were folded into other peoples but they had all basically these great nations of antiquity disappeared by the time of Christ and were supplanted by, by Rome or by the Parthians, and, and that's for the later um, discussions here. So the world between the time of Abraham and the time of Christ was really drastically changed. The political landscape, the customs of the people were all drastically changed by the time of Christ— In Paul's time, there were only a very few remnants of that old Genesis 10 world that Abraham was called out of, which remained intact. Most of it had already been race-mixed with Canaanites. And, and these marginally white races, or even with non-whites, the Ethiopians were originally white, they were all race-mixed by the time of Christ for the most part, and the Egyptians were all race-mixed from the time of Christ. The people, the white people in Egypt were mostly Macedonian Greeks. The Canaanites in ancient times had race mixed with the, and this is right in Genesis chapter 15 and, and the rest of the Bible, had race mixed with the Kenites and the Rephaim, who were the descendants of fallen angels, and with other tribes who had no origin in Genesis chapter 10. They weren't from among the children of Noah. They were from some other place, from some other lineage, The descendants of the children of Israel, along with remnants of some of the other Genesis 10 nations, by the time of Paul of Tarsus were now mostly in Europe, not all of them, but they were mostly in Europe, for which reason the apostles of Christ went to Europe. When Abraham was given this promise that his seed would be many nations, as we're about to read, there were no modern European nations as we know them, only a few of them. And those few, are those people that we mentioned, came from the Jepethites, or from other Semitic tribes, other Shemite tribes. Now, with the rise of Islam a few hundred years after the time of Christ, the last remnants of the ancient white world in Mesopotamia and the Levant in North Africa were on an irreversible path to destruction through race mixing. in in Islam, under these Islamic governments, but now we are getting ahead of ourselves. We should return to Genesis and focus on the Abrahamic covenants because they are the foundation of the promise of Christ and the new covenant. If you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant, you'll never understand why the new covenant was to fulfill the promises made to the fathers.
1: Well, the uh, Abrahamic covenant, I mean, it, it can't apply to anybody else other than us as well. That's the important thing, that there's no way that any of these covenants could ever apply to the people calling themselves Jews today. It can only be uh, the Europeans, it can only be the white race that actually fulfill all the promises that were made in these covenants. I mean, that identifies who the people of the Old Testament are, is, is these covenants that was made with them.
0: Well, the Jews were prophesied by Christ and by Jeremiah to be a curse among other peoples. To be chased by the sword and to be a reproach and a curse in nations that were not their own among other peoples. Where the children of Israel were prophesied, the true children of Israel, who are not Jews, were prophesied to become great nations and multitudes of nations and to eclipse the old Genesis 10 nations that had gone off into paganism. So when you, when you accurately trace both groups of people throughout the Bible, these cursed Jews and these Israelites blessed with these promises – and you accurately identify those Israelites blessed with those promises in the world today, you can't come up with Jews. You can only come up with white Europeans. And we can demonstrate that most white Europeans descended from the Israelites bearing those promises. When Abraham was given those promises, there were no Germans. There might be a few archaeological artifacts from the area called Germany, but there were no Germans. And and we could discuss that at great length. There were no Englishmen. There might have been some stray people in England or some Japetite tribes that settled there or some um artifacts that from far ancient antiquity that showed that there were some people there, but they weren't the ancestors of the modern Englishmen, or the modern Bretons, or the modern Welsh, or or whatever, the modern Irish, the modern Scotch. No, they weren't their ancestors. They may have been predecessors. They may have been um, forerunners, but they weren't ancestors. And that's the case all over Europe. The populations of Europe have, have, um, to a great extent... Moved into the continent in in his demonstrably historical times,
1: and in fulfilment in fulfilment of these these promises as well. Do you want me to um, uh, begin with uh, some of these covenants, Bill, from Genesis? 12?
0: Yes, and the covenants in Genesis twelve and seventeen.
1: Okay, this is uh, Genesis twelve one. be blessed. And that's an important one that the church mistakes, isn't it? That uh, that last one there, uh, verse 3, isn't it, Bill?
0: Well, well, right. They love to to misstate that and, and imagine that it applies to everybody in the world and tell us that this great nation are the Jews and that if we curse the Jews, we'll be cursed. And if we bless the Jews, we'll be blessed. And the truth is that Christians have been blessing these Jews under that misunderstanding for 1,500 years. And when Christians bless the Jews, the opposite happens. Christians are cursed. When we bless the Jews, we're cursed. And when we curse the Jews, we're blessed. So just the opposite happens as the promise of Abraham in, in rea- historical reality. When England, when King Edward expelled the Jews from England in the, t- end of the end of the 12th century, I believe, right? England became, without the Jews, merry old England. It entered into a period of absolute prosperity for 400 years until it readmitted the Jews. And, and then England was gradually placed back under usury slavery. And, and that's just one historical example.
1: they have also got this- national socialism. You, you know, you've also got what what happened in Germany. Just in the short amount of time that they had without Jews, they they just led the world. They were ten years in front of the rest of the world in in all their technology. You know, I I think this this actual verse, this this believing that this actually refers to the Jews. This is the you know this this is so essential to try and get out to people the reason why you can't have people thinking that this is the jews because every every christian in the world thinks that this refers to the jews and if they are if they curse the jews or speak badly about them it's going to bounce back on them and this is why it's so important to to tell people that this isn't talking about jews the old testament is not talking about jews this verse is so important and Pagan white nationalists don't understand it. They think, well, we can just talk to Judeo-Christians and we'll just tell them that that, that the Holocaust was a lie and we'll tell them that the Jews do usury. It doesn't matter because you've got people that believe in God. And and none of that matters if you believe in God. You you fear the Lord. And if you believe that the Lord is saying, if you curse the Jews, you will be cursed, doesn't matter what man tells you. It doesn't matter if somebody tells you they lied about the Holocaust. That that doesn't matter. The important thing is is that they believe that God told them that if they cursed the Jews, they would be cursed. That's why it's so important to, to break this. I think this is, you know, one of the most important verses in the Bible that, you know, for most Christians. And it needs to, it just needs to be broken, that idea that it's referring to the Jews.
0: And it never referred to the Jews, not once. The, and, and we're going to address that as we proceed here that this evening, and, and probably in an unforeseen part of the series. But but this, where it says, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed, it's that those, that, that concept of all the families of the earth was defined in the Bible in Genesis chapter 10. And all the families of the earth are only all of those Adamic Genesis 10 families of the earth. Even Paul of Tarsus, however, reads this in a prophetic manner in his epistle to the Romans and believes that it referred to all the families of the earth that were promised to come from Abraham's loins because they would inherit the earth. In any interpretation, you cannot apply this to blacks or to orientals or to people outside of the biblical context because all the families of the earth is defined in Genesis chapter 10 to be all of those families descended from Noah all of those families of the same race the other races are not descended from Noah you can proceed with Genesis 17 Okay,
1: this is uh, Genesis 17, verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with thee. And thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. None of that can refer to Jews, can it? I've never, ever heard of the Jews ever, ever having a, a, a king. Uh, Jews haven't, you know, what, what do they have? King, king Herod, if they trace themselves back to him? And he was just a puppet of, uh, he was just a puppet of the Romans. It, it's only the Europeans it's, that have kings and monarchies, isn't it?
0: Well, well right. Herod was only a usurper of, of a government and, and a thief, and bribed Mark Antony in, in order to be appointed king. But he was never a, a, a natural king. Herod was operating a crime ring. And, and you know, kings shall come out of thee, and I will make nations of thee. Well, well Herod was appointed king of, of the Romans over an alien nation because Herod was an Edomite. Herod was an Edomite, and and he was the king in Judea, a, a Roman political district. That's what Judea was at the time. It wasn't even really a nation. Judea was a Roman province. It was a designated Roman province. It's very clear in the history of the Maccabees that they had gone out from Jerusalem and conquered all the surrounding tribes and forced them to convert to Judaism, and and we'll discuss that a little later at, at greater length, but Judea doesn't even qualify as a nation at the time of Christ. It, it's just a mixed-race political district. under. The, the authority of Rome, subservient to the Romans. So Herod's kingship, it is really only an administrative post under the emperor. And the Jews have never had kings, is right. That the, the um, ancient Israelites had kings. Okay, Israel and Judah together do not qualify as many nations. So where are the rest of these nations? We don't see Jews all over the world at any time in history who are autonomous and ruled by their own kings. That's never happened. So when has have these promises been fulfilled? Only when you properly identify the children of Israel can you imagine the fulfillment of these promises so that we're going to repeat that this concept in in scripture many times abraham the the word abraham means father of many nations abram i'm not sure of its exact meaning by itself it it might mean father of a nation or father of um let, let me look it up real quick abram means exalted father according to strong's concordance so abraham is a totally different word and the name change came about to reflect the promise Well, which is why the name change was, was made. Abraham means father of a multitude or chief of a multitude rather than exalted father. So there you have it.
1: Well, I'd also say, I mean, it's saying there that he's, he's going to be the father of many nations and you, and you would probably get... Arabs or Muslims saying, oh, yes, well, well, we are part of those nations because we came from uh, uh, Ishmael or it, it was these other sons of Abraham that, that we haven't heard of. That that's who these nations are. But later on in it, it says to thy seed and after thee. So it can only be from the seed of Abraham and Sarah. You know, Sarah, Sarah was his was you know was a relative of his. He it was his um half sister. So where it says only to thy seed, it, those nations can only have come directly from Abraham. They can't be bastard nations because this promise isn't made to bastards. It says to thy seed after thee in in their generations. So the nations had to be pure blooded nations. They couldn't be bastard Arabs or, or Muslims or anyone with uh, dark skin, basically. It, that
0: would negate the what promise. It, what good is it if I told you that you would be the father of many grandchildren and all of your sons married Chinese girls? What what good are those children? That the Arab the word Arab in Hebrew means mixed. The Arabs were called Arabs in ancient times by the Hebrews. The word Arab is not a Greek word, it's not a Roman word, it's a Hebrew word that means mixed. The mixed multitude that followed the children of Israel out of Egypt, that word for mixed multitude in the Hebrew of Exodus where it mentions that, is the word Arab. The word means mixed. It also comes from a verb which means to grow dark. So, it describes people who grow dark because they're mixed. Well, when your son marries a nigger, your grandchildren are going to be darker than you because they're mixed. That's what the word Arab describes. And the Ishmaelites and the Edomites who did not convert to Judaism and all of the other people of The Arabian Peninsula, by Roman times, were no longer called by their original tribal names. Even in the pages of Flavius Josephus, writing in the first century, Flavius being a Hebrew and being familiar with the original tribal names, called them Arabs and called the land Arabia, because all those people became mixed, That's the origin of the word Arab. So, those Nabataean Arabs might claim to be descended from Ishmael, and the claim might be partially true, but they're also descended from Negers and, and all sorts of other people the Canaanites, the Kenites, the Rephaim, whatever. So, they're mixed. They're not really Ishmael anymore. How could you be a, a a British man, if you're only one fourth British and, and three quarters Turk or Turk or Chinese or, or black or whatever, you can't claim to be an Englishman. Not properly, the claim shouldn't be ex- shouldn't be accepted. That's for sure. That that's the downfall of our race.
1: That's also um so, this 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 phrase you know where the jews say well, well we haven't got two fathers it was obviously an insult was to say with you well, you've got if say that somebody had two fathers which meant that they were mixed race so again saying right. here abraham isn't isn't you know he's not sharing fathers he will be the one father of many nations not that these nations well, will have more than right. one
0: and if we follow the scripture through genesis we'll see and and we'll see it here in um, Genesis, when, when we quote Genesis chapter 35, that Jacob was the particular inheritor of this promise because Ishmael was put out. Ishmael was put out and excluded from the heritage of Abraham, which was to be given to Isaac. That's first. Now, Ishmael was given a separate promise by God, and that's fine. But he was put out, and it has nothing to do with these promises here. And Esau despised his birthright because he was a race mixer, and he lost his inheritance. So he doesn't count here. And that's actually what Paul of Tarsus is explaining in Galatians chapter 3, which we'll probably get to before the end of the series. Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3 that, The promise wasn't made to offsprings, but to an offspring, and and he's really comparing the various branches of the descendants of Abraham, that the promise wasn't made to Esau, it wasn't made to Ishmael, it was passed on particularly and specifically to Jacob, because the other sons were, were disinherited and excluded for different reasons. Ishmael was excluded because his mother was a Hamite and and not of Abraham's own kin. And and Esau was excluded because he took Hittite wives and despised his birthright and, and became a race mixer. And that's the that that's I'm not making that up. That's what Paul of Tarsus attributes his exclusion to in Hebrews chapter 12.
1: And Sarah talks about saying, she says, uh, my life will not be worth living if Jacob does the same and, and takes a foreign, foreign right. wife. So she says, oh, she yeah, tells herself it's, that
0: evident. it's evident in the Genesis account. But even Paul says explicitly that Esau was a profane man and a fornicator. And Paul uses that word fornication several times in his epistles to describe race mixers. Esau being one of them. So, so it's pretty clear that these promises were not passed on through Esau or through Ishmael. So that argument is not valid. Circumcision is introduced with, with the covenant that God made with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 17. Circumcision was the command that Abraham and his sons be circumcised was appended to that covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that the the covenant is not unconditional. The covenant in Genesis chapter twelve, the first initial promises to Abraham, which contained all these aspects that he would be a great nation and have multitudes of descendants, are without condition. And other promises to Abraham are without condition, but. Upon Abraham and his house were imposed, was imposed the, the, um, the command to be circumcised. And I know you wanted to talk about that last week, but this is the appropriate time to discuss that. Um, I, I can't I don't know if you want to comment on anything before I proceed.
1: Well, I, I I know that whatever the circumcision ritual was back then, it's got nothing to do with the Jewish circumcision ritual today. The the, the ritual the Jews have today, there's there's four parts to it, and three of them aren't aren't even included in uh, in this command to be circumcised. There's none of the. um the, the, sucking of the baby's penis, the sucking of the blood, um, when the Jews do it, they, they cut the foreskin off and they stretch it back. They do horrible things to it. And it, it seems, just seems to me that all this was back then was just, just a small cutting off of a, of a piece of the foreskin. It wasn't all this, um, you know all this really painful stuff that that the Jews do today, and it it seems to me, you know, what what word have we got for this? We've just, just told that this was this was circumcision, so we don't really know quite what it what, quite what it involved, and it basically set those set the men apart from these these other men, and I would suggest that. Um, you know the the women, the, the Hebrew women. That, that was all they they would ever have seen was a you know was was a circumcised penis, and and that you know that's how they would know that they were with some who they were supposed to be with. You know, if it, if it wasn't like that, then they shouldn't be with them. And that, that's all I, I could
0: think of for and, it. And and that's my own theory on circumcision. First, like like you said. The Jewish ritual, the modern Jewish ritual, is quite disgusting. It's absolutely revolting. First, to put another man's penis in your mouth, even if it's only a little boy, that is sodomy. The Bible would consider that to be an act of sodomy. And second, to suck the blood from a penis is contrary to the Old Testament law against the eating of blood. You're not supposed to eat blood. It's commanded explicitly in the law not to eat blood. But these rabbis suck the blood of a child's penis. I don't see them spit it out in, in those YouTube videos I've seen of the mohels. The mohel is the, the rabbi who commits the act. That is a, a very repulsive, revolting, disgusting Jewish practice that so has well, yeah. no place in the Bible.
1: Yeah, I, I hadn't actually seen the videos. I, I just read about it. I mean, that that makes it even sicker than, um, you know, how I imagined it. I It is just revolting, as you say. Um, yeah, I'm just speechless that it still goes on today, that that, that, that that can be allowed. They'll make a fuss about female genital mutilation going on in, in Britain, but what about what these Jews are doing to to these little boys that's just been going on forever? Nobody points out how how absolutely revolting it is that this is going on, and and people think that that's what was going on in the Old Testament, when it it quite clearly isn't, for numerous reasons.
0: To discuss the question, why circumcision? You're right, I can't prove empirically why circumcision was imposed. It can't be proven because it's not stated. But when we look at the way that circumcision was viewed – throughout the Old Testament by the people of the book, and when we look at the apparent effects which circumcision had on those people, that alone is enough to form a viable hypothesis explaining why circumcision was imposed. We have a world, an ancient world, engaged in paganism, Abraham, what was surrounded by these Canaanite nations that were engaged in bow worship, and bow worship was basically a fertility cult in which phallic worship played a major role. And in the ancient world, and this is evident in, in the artwork of the Greeks and the the Egyptians for the most part and and the descriptions of the ancient Hebrews or Phoenicians, and it's even evident in the New Testament, that in the ancient world, in, an, in a world which was almost entirely white, I mean, even the Canaanites and the Edomites appeared to be white, even though they weren't pure white. In a world that was almost entirely white, racial differences are immediately apparent. When a particular race is circumcised, because nudity at that time for men was ordinary, nudity was very common. It was very common that men who worked outdoors worked in the nude, whether they were farmers or shipbuilders or or whatever their vocation. If they worked hard at labor, clothing was very expensive and they didn't want to ruin their clothing. They worked, they were Accustomed to working in the nude, we see that in um, in in the, the the picture of the picture drawn by the gospel of Peter in the fishing boat, where he sees Christ walking on the water, Peter gets up from the boat and he puts his clothing on to jump into the sea. So he was fishing in the nude. He was fishing in a nude because men were accustomed to working in a nude so they didn't soil their clothes. But Peter's modesty caused him to put his his tunic on when he left the boat. So that's just one little example. But there were many examples of men working outdoors in a nude in, in Greek and Phoenician art. And it was commonplace. They didn't wear clothing when they worked outside. So nudity was a very, the male nudity was very common in the ancient world. It's very common in the artwork of the ancient world. Women would have been accustomed to seeing men nude all the time. And if those men were not circumcised, they would identify them immediately as somebody of an alien race. It would have made the, the, the other nations actually engaging in phallic worship certainly would have looked askance at a circumcised penis, and the same would have been true of those who were circumcised. If we read throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the uncircumcised, the word is basically used as a slur throughout scripture, throughout the, the historical accounts of the Old Testament, the uncircumcised are looked down upon because it the circumcision kept this particular race, which God gave promises to preserve, it kept that race distinct from the others. The cultural acclamation to somebody circumcised would have been very strong in the women. I think it's and it also – uh, sorry, go on, Bill. It would have made it dip- more difficult to infiltrate towns and, and societies – Circumcision was basically a command that helped facilitate the the distinct preservation of the race.
1: It's a reminder of of the covenant as well. And if you think, they used to have a sacrifice, didn't they, If they, when they had covenants or some kind of shedding of blood. So, were, and there was, so there was a shedding of blood, so there was this covenant, and then there was a mark there. They'd see that mark there and be reminded of the fact that they had a covenant with God, that they were, they were special, they were, they were apart from everybody else, and they'd be reminded of that every day. Maybe that there
0: was a part of it as well. Well, well right, because it was a mixed world. It was a race. Mesopotamia was a race-mixed world. The Canaanites were not entirely white. The Kenites were not entirely white. The Rephaim, the, the sons of the ancient giants, they were not entirely white. So, so the Canaanites had mixed with the Kenites and the Rephaim and other tribes that have no genealogy from Genesis chapter 10. It can't be told where the hell they were from or who they were. So the Kenizzites and, and, and the Girgashites for instance. So so we have the Cadmonites. So so we have this mixed world around these Israelites, and the Israelites um, had this command of circumcision which kept them distinct in a mixed world. And and only by that were they able to maintain their racial integrity and their culture. That's the way I see the circumcision in the context of the ancient world. In a world where male nudity and bow worship, phallic worship, were were quite commonplace. They were the norm. Sodomy was the norm in in that ancient Canaanite world, just like it's becoming a norm today. It's not far-fetched to believe that sodomy was normal at the time of Abraham among those other people. When we see it becoming normal before our very eyes today— and it's the same people perpetrating it. So that's the only thing that really explains why the circumcision was what was imposed that now after the Edomites and these Canaanite enemies of God in in first century Judea had had accepted circumcision Christians rejected it and and that also helped to distinguish them from us in Modern times, especially in Europe where circumcision isn't as popular. In America, the Jews made it popular these last fifty years, citing medical reasons, and all the doctors started pushing it. Basically, that allows the Jews to blend in with us. So circumcision had its had its um utility in modern times too, but for the opposite reason, right?
1: Well, I was just thinking um, there as well. I mean, that they, they would they would be circumcised when they were a baby or whatever. and they would, they would grow up, and, and they would see that they, you know that they, their foreskin was cut, and it would, it would you know they would think, "Why was my foreskin cut?" Well, because cause God has got covenant with you, and so you would you would remember it, even if you didn't know any of the scriptures. You would know that you know you were marked because you have this this covenant with God, and I guess then later on they would they forgot the scriptures. And when they became race mixed, it was, it was as if, well, all you need to do is get your, get your foreskin circumcised and then you can be a Jew. And that's pretty much what happened. And all these different races did actually come into Judea and they would get circumcised and then they would be called Jews. They were proselytes of the gate or proselytes of justice. And the important thing was, was just as long as they're circumcised, that's okay. You can call yourself a Jew then. And I guess, and that, then it takes us up to Jesus' time and, and a lot of the, the Jews that were there that, that was just it. They, they just got circumcised and that was it. I think, you know, there are sort of verses that are almost referring to this, that, um, you know, it's not about just having your foreskin cut. There's, there's you know, there's more to it than that. You, you know, you need to be born into this. You need to be of this particular uh, seed line, basically. You need to be a part of these covenants. But by that time, they, they you know, I guess because it becomes so race-mixed, they've forgotten, you know, just quite the reason for it.
0: And thought that was all you need. That was all that was needed. Maybe we can move on to Genesis chapter thirty-five, verse nine, and see that these same promises were channeled down, so to speak, through Jacob. Okay, Genesis thirty-five nine,
1: and God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Paddan Aram, and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee I will give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land."
0: Now, there are many, um, other promises which inform us that the promise, that the land, e- even though Jacob had a short term and Abraham had a short term promise that they would inherit this land, which was fulfilled by the time of, of David, there were other promises which had, um, exceeded this, and, and we read in Genesis chapter 28, and I didn't place it into here, I, I don't know why I, I, I had meant to, we read of Jacob's vision, and Genesis chapter 28, we just read from Genesis chapter 35, so an older promise to Jacob is, more of, is of greater scope where Jacob was in Bethel, and God told him, I am the Lord thy God, God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. So that's basically the promise to Abraham. But then it says, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, And to the west from Bethel is only about 40 miles to the sea, right? So so to the Mediterranean Sea. So this must transcend even that. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And then it repeats this promise to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And in thy seed shall all the families of the earth, those Genesis 10 families, be blessed. Now, the Genesis 10 families at this time were spread from the Caspian Sea and the Indus River all the way to Spain at this time, So where you had the people of Tartessus or Tarshish. So this promise to Jacob must encompass that entire area where it says, and thou shalt spread abroad. To the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. The Adamic Genesis 10 nations are basically settled as far south as Ethiopia, the Horn of Africa, and as far east as the Ind- at least as far east as the Indus River. And historically, we can in, in ancient history determine that those were all white lands. And to the north, and that and they were all the way up between the Caucasus Mountains and the Black and Caspian Seas, and to the west, which is basically the entire Mediterranean basin at this time. So that promise to um to Jacob is of much greater scope than just Palestine, ultimately. That's what I was
1: going to ask. You know how you understood that bit there, with the promise of the land. Where it says the land that you're on, did he did he just mean that that land there, or did he mean all the land? Because I mean later on it says that um, Israel will will inherit all these nations that they were scattered among. They, they would inherit everything. You know, inherit the earth basically because they are they are the Lord's portion. So you know, I always always thought this is talk. Think this is t- talking about everything, all land. His,
0: his, well, right, and at this time, that phrase, all the families of the earth, must be understood in the context of Genesis 10, where it is defined, where all the families of the earth are described. So, that understanding of, of that relationship necessitates the belief that this promise to Jacob stretched far beyond the borders of Palestine. It couldn't have included just that little ninety square mile patch of land in what we know as modern Israel, that's for sure. Or even the greater Israel that the Jews like to dream of, from, from the Euphrates to the to that that was the original promise to Abraham explicitly from the euphrates to the river of egypt however that this blessing of all the families of the earth and this promise that his seed the seed of jacob would go from spread abroad from the west to the east greatly transcends that concept that this only includes palestine
1: can it actually be traced that order from the from the west to the east to the north and south, or whichever order it does it in because you know it's not in the in a straight order like north south east west is it it, it you know saying going west first and east can can they be traced in going in those directions one after the other?
0: Well, yeah, they absolutely went in all those directions. That that should probably be a subject for later on when we discuss Romans chapter four and and some of the New Testament fulfillment of this. But yes, they definitely. We'll discuss that um, in the course of the balance of today and and in. I, I I imagine that we're going to need a part four of the series in order to make our full argument. That's just the way it's unfolding, right? Yeah, so fine. yeah, definitely going to explain that. So because was, that definitely happened.
1: And the, the Euphrates to Egypt, or whatever it was. I mean, that that was the that was Solomon's kingdom, really. That that was the extent of Solomon's kingdom. But it, I mean, even his kingdom was was wider than that because all the kings of the surrounding area were send, were sending him. Taxes and tithes from from way out of that area, not you know, yes. not not just there.
0: Yes, that's true. Yeah, the pretty much the, um, the extent of Solomon's kingdom, which David really left to Solomon, um, was from the river of Egypt, which is the 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 border of which is basically the Nile, right? That the mouth of the Nile, the Nile Delta, from there all the way to Hamas off in northern Syria, which is maybe 200 miles north of Jerusalem, I I don't remember the exact number, the Israelites in the time of David had taken over Damascus, and the land of the Amorites, which stretched all the way to the Euphrates River and, and the edge of Babylonia, they came to control all of that in the time of David and Solomon. It didn't last much beyond that, and and the when the kingdom was divided, it was really divided into more than two parts. But the Bible focuses on the original land of the division of the twelve tribes in the days of Joshua. But the the kingdom of David and Solomon far exceeded that.
1: I think it's in Josephus. He talks about uh, the kings from faraway lands that were were sending. Money, basically, to, to keep the temple going, keep the sacrifices going. And I, am not sure if I remember a, a reference to it in, um, the Chronicles of England in, in the early, in the Brute. And I know that, um, E. Raymond Capt has, uh, talks about it as well about, about the countries roundabout that, that were sending money in to, to Solomon. And there was a huge trading, uh, area that, that stretched right the way across from Britain to there and, and to the, to the Far East pretty much, around about that time. I'm not sure where all the references are from.
0: The Israelites of the Old Testament had a great reach overseas that's little understood, because in the Greek writings they're called Phoenicians. But the true Phoenicians of the Golden Age of Phoenicia were Israelites. And that could be established in the Bible. And that's also the reason why the Phoenicians bore the Hebrew alphabet with them everywhere they went, which became the basis for our modern alphabet. Whereas the inhabitants of Palestine from before the Hebrew occupation, they didn't use the Hebrew alphabet. They used cuneiform script. That's the old Assyrian one, isn't it? Well, well, right. Cuneiform script came out of Sumer and, and early Assyria and Babylonia. Genesis chapter 48.
1: Okay. Genesis chapter 48, starting at verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when now, now
0: this is jacob i'm sorry to interrupt you this is jacob i should have probably grabbed a little more scripture before verse 15 but this is jacob blessing ephraim and manasseh the sons of joseph and he's giving them a special blessing above that of all his other sons and there's aspects of this we should discuss that that are difficult to understand but that's okay i'm sorry
1: okay continuing from verse 17 And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused, and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great." But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you, and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my
0: sword and with my bow. Now, now, the British Israel people, I discern that a lot of them lean towards um, limiting the nations which came from israel to ephraim and manasseh on account of this special blessing with ephraim which ephraim and manasseh had been granted by jacob but i can't see it that way and that's because The last line that we quoted, verse 22, says here, Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren. And that's Jacob speaking to Joseph, not to Ephraim and Manasseh. So Ephraim and Manasseh have this promise to be a great nation and a company of nations. But that does not preclude the promises of an equal portion to each of the other 11 tribes. They, too, would become great nations in their own right, eventually, at some point in future history, because these are prophecies, right?
1: Isn't that the same point when, um, when he's, he's actually blessing uh, the rest of Jacob Israel's sons, and he gives each one of them a symbol, which then later turns up in heraldry? Because if, if these symbols are still turning up in heraldry, I mean, that means that these nations are still there.
0: Well well right and that's throughout the next chapter Genesis chapter 49 and and you're more than welcome to to add any and any discussion you would like of that that there's a that there, yeah, you know there's got to be a um a profound or a deeper reason that explains why all of many of these European royal houses at a very very early time adopted heraldic symbols which relate back to the ancient world, to to the the world of the Israelites, to the world of the Bible. Where do you see lions in modern Europe that they should become great symbols of heraldry in, in all of the houses of Europe? And, and some of these other symbols like David's harp or the red hand or, or, or the red hand of Judah, right? Or, or other um, symbols of heraldry that really have no context in medieval Europe. They had their context in the ancient world.
1: And in these blessings, I mean, before I knew about the heraldry, it, it never really made that much sense to me you're saying somebody's going to be like a hind and and somebody else is going to be like the sea and someone else is going to be like a, a snake on the on the wayside and you think well, what, what does all this mean and then you see that um it actually features in all the heraldry especially the the lion where it talks about the young lion and then you've got the the lion and the unicorn of the british heraldry the unicorn is is grown out from the the bull i believe and then you get um john bull as well, which is associated with Britain, but particularly the, the lion. I mean, in Scotland as well, they've got the lion; that's that's their, their royal symbol. And and the lion was was the symbol of Judah. And again, you, you don't see the Jews using any of this symbolism. You don't think of the lion when you think of the Jews who who claim to be from Judah. Yet they don't have any of the symbolism, or all of the symbolism is associated with with the European monarchs, the European monarchies, and the nobles. All of it. I mean there's people that have done lots where of
0: deep Jews, research. Well the Jews have used symbolism that's been despised by scripture. Like that star.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Star of Remphum. Well well, right. It's not it's certainly not the star of David. I I mean that's just um, a a false claim made by the jews themselves i i I read scripture as much as anyone and never saw a star of david (laughs) only a star of devils
1: it's interesting here he says that um you know he took that land from the amorites with my sword and with my bow i mean the, the british were well known for being expert bowmen with the longbow Obviously, you know, these, these weapons have been around for a long time. This shows you that these are warlike people. They're not, they're not bankers. They didn't, you know, take their land through mortgages and compound interest. You know, they, they took their land fair and square, and they paid, paid, with, paid in blood for it. Nothing like the Jews.
0: Well, well, right. I like to joke all the time that if Joshua and the Israelites were Jews, they would have invaded the land of Canaan with pencils and briefcases. Not, not with swords and axes, right? <laughs> I mean, it, if, 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 um, if Moses was a Jew, then we would see pedophilia all throughout the Torah and it would be approved, right? Uh, I mean, all of these things that the Jews engage in and have engaged in throughout history are anathema, are, um, punished in the Hebrew scriptures, their behavior that is prohibited by the Hebrew scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures, it, even in, in the Torah, in the law, are the most anti-Jewish writings in existence. Where do you see, before the time of Christ, um, these prohibitions against usury, against um, adultery against fornication what where do you see them in 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 ancient writings nowhere
1: well, we also see the the temptations that the jews are responsible for today we see the enemies of the israelites using in the old testament and you, when you think of um the women of midian that were deliberately put there to, to tempt the israelites to to sleep with them and that was the curse of um Baal Peor or something like that. It also gets mentioned in, in the New Testament. And then Phineas comes out with a, with a spear and he spears through two race mixes and he's given, um, an eternal priesthood. But that was deliberately done. Um, this, this soothsayer went to Midian and said, well, put, put your, put all your, your sexy women out there and, and they will seduce them. And then you'll be, a, and then you'll be able to defeat them in battle. And it was the Israelites enemy that was doing that.
0: Not, not the Israelites. But when you read the ancient Greek pagan literature, even the best poets, the, the most seemingly most moral poets, if they didn't approve of homosexuality, sodomy, things like that, they didn't condemn it. Even if they didn't partake in it or approve of it, they did not condemn it. And, and Homer talked um, very subjectively, very um, sometimes approvingly of, of the relationships between the sexual relationships between men and boys. Many of the Greek poets did. As if it was okay. They, they were very libertarian, I think, in their moral values. That was the ideal world for the Jew. That's the ideal world for the sodomite, for a society to have such libertarian moral values. Where the Bible forbids all of those. It forbids explicitly all of that behavior. Wipe swapping and things like that are, are an abomination to God. They're never an abomination to the Jew. We should um probably stop here and 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 I don't know if you really want to talk about Jeremiah chapter thirty one real quick before we go on, and we'll use that chapter as the bridge to our discussion of the fulfillment of these promises in the New Testament, because that'll be the next step in this series.
1: Okay, i will continue with uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break although i was an husband unto them saith the lord but this shall be the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days saith the lord i will put my law in their inward hearts and write it in their hearts and will be their god and they shall be my people
0: this concept of a new covenant Now, when Jeremiah wrote, all of the children of the northern tribes of Israel, plus most of the people of Judah, had been taken off into captivity by the Assyrians, and that happened perhaps a hundred years before Jeremiah wrote this. Now, when Jeremiah wrote this, Ezekiel was in that captivity, and he was writing his prophecy, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was about to be taken away by the Babylonians and destroyed, 585 B.C. So, Jeremiah writes this promise of a new covenant, because the old covenant has been absolutely violated time and again by the children of Israel, and Yahweh announces, God announces that it's going to be broken, that he broke it in the prophecy of Zechariah, maybe a hundred years later. So we have Jeremiah in Jerusalem and Ezekiel in the captivity announcing that a new covenant and an everlasting covenant is going to be made at some point in the future. And that can only be the new covenant of the time of Christ. And the apostles of Christ informed us specifically Paul himself in Hebrews chapter 8 and in Romans chapter 9, that this new covenant is the new covenant promised in Jeremiah. That the new covenant in Christ is the new covenant that was promised long ago in Jeremiah. So, if this covenant, this new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31... In Jeremiah chapter 32, in Ezekiel chapter 34, and in Ezekiel chapter 37, especially, chapter 37, verse 26, it's those four occasions that this new covenant is prophesied, and it's always for the same people. The house of Israel, a house is a family, right? And the house of Judah it's only promised to them. <clears throat> How can anybody think the New Testament is for anybody that, is for anybody else?
1: It's really explicit. I mean, you don't get any more I- explicit than that. It, it's a covenant only with the house of Israel. It's going to be written in their hearts. The law will be written in their inward parts. They shall be my people. Uh, you know, the... the the Pope says that, uh, the Jews have a previous dispensation. And this is the reason why he says that, because he thinks that, that all these things here, because they know that it's specifically talking about Israel, a lot of the Old Testament, or well, all of it, but they, but they think that it's talking about the Jews. This is the reason why the Pope says that the Jews have a, have a previous dispensation, because he believes all of this. And yet it, yet it can't possibly be, because that's talking about Christianity and the Jews aren't Christians. The Jews don't have this new covenant. They don't have the law written in their hearts. And only white people have the law written in our hearts. We have a conscience. We have what we call the golden golden rule. Treat other people how you would like to be treated yourself. And no other race has that. You know, you know I think that's what this law is that was written in our hearts, Bill. That that uh, golden rule.
0: Well, well, right. I believe the law written in our hearts actually happened through centuries of... Um, cultural acclimation in, in the years, the centuries before the Christian era, the centuries in the old kingdom, that because even though our ancestors were put out of this kingdom and disinherited, they still kept those moral values with them that, that basically, um, break down into the golden rule, right? But that's okay. That, that's something that can't be, um, empirically demonstrated one way or the other, the law is written in our hearts. Our race alone has naturally lived by the rule of law, and Paul commends the Romans for that in Romans chapter 2. Even though the Romans were pagans, he commends them for building a society based on the rule of law. And, and the concept of equity in, in law in, and justice in society, which with all their faults, the Romans did do that. Here we have explicit promises of a new covenant that's going to be made with the same people that the old covenant was made with. And there is no new covenant for anyone else anywhere in Scripture. Why would he, why would it even be called a new covenant with anyone else? Because Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, never had a covenant with anybody else in scripture. There were more general covenants made to the greater Adamic race in Genesis chapter three and Genesis chapter nine, but he never had a specific covenant with any other people in, in, in scripture. The Levitical Covenant is taken out of context. Christianity is not the successor of the Levitical Covenant. The Levitical Covenant organized a kingdom with the same people that were the object of the Abrahamic Covenant. And as long as they lived up to the provisions of obedience that they were expected to maintain, that kingdom would succeed and grow and be very successful. But they failed to do that, so that covenant was broken. But that Levitical covenant was something over and above the Abrahamic covenant. Because they broke the Levitical covenant, does not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant still stands because all of the burden of the Abrahamic covenant is on God. Abraham received it unconditionally. No, Abraham didn't have to do anything. And when we return to this subject next week, we will see that the New Covenant is based on the Abrahamic Covenant, not on the Old covenant, old Levitical Covenant. Not at all.
1: Well, I think we can see that, you know, the Abrahamic Covenant is still in place because what it's talking about in, in this section of verses here, it's saying, you broke my covenant. That's referring to the Levitical one because they couldn't break the Abrahamic one because there were no conditions to that. And because that Abrahamic Covenant is still in place – that's why he's writing a new law and making a new covenant. If it wasn't for the fact that there was an Abrahamic covenant there, there would be no need for him to make a new covenant with them, because of the, you know, because of them breaking the old one, he, he could just cut himself off from them. But he can't cut himself off from them because you know, God has, has sworn on Himself that uh, these things would pass and that these nations would come from Israel, and, and they would. Basically, the, what they would inherit the world. So that has to come, come to be despite the fact that, um, you know, the Israelites broke the Levitical covenant. It, it doesn't matter that they broke that. The, the Abrahamic one cannot be broken. So he has, you know, so God has to put things in place to make this new one which obviously included um you know the the divorce divorce in israel and then having to be able to marry israel in order to remarry israel ended up having to die on the cross and be resurrected and again this is all just for one particular people it doesn't make any sense if if any of this is is to include anybody else it's all about the the fulfillments of these promises with with this one people so i think this this these verses here in, in Jeremiah it proves that there's you know there's two, two separate covenants there there has to be otherwise it doesn't make sense
0: well, well right and and that's the, the Genesis alone proves that there's separate co- covenants that that the um, Levitical covenant that we see we start to read about in Exodus chapter 19 is a separate covenant from the Abrahamic covenant is very clear. The We're not even touching on the Levitical Covenant in this series, really, because the Levitical Covenant and the New Covenant are two separate covenants. One does not follow the other. The Levitical Covenant was God's way of maintaining the promises to Abraham in that time. And when it failed... The new covenant is God's way of maintaining the promises to Abraham in this time. The promises, the promises to Abraham are the reasons for the new covenant. And we will see that as we present scriptures from Luke chapter 1, from Romans chapter 15, from Romans chapter 4, and and from elsewhere in the New Testament when we return to the series. In the next part of the series, perhaps I should say. Okay, I'll look forward to that. Well, thank you, senator It's been wonderful. And I will see you next week, perhaps. Definitely, definitely. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. God bless.